Hey, this is the Mark Butler Show, episode seven. I got to say, I'm really enjoying this podcasting stuff. I've had a couple emails from people saying that they're enjoying the episodes. I'm enjoying them too. Thank you to anyone who has emailed me. It means a lot to get some feedback because, you know, this is a medium where you sit in a room and talk to a microphone and you don't know how it's being received. But if you're thinking about podcasting or making video, I would really encourage you to do it. You'll learn a lot. Uh, It'll improve your public speaking. You'll make amazing connections with people. I got an email from a guy named Michael. Hey, Michael. Michael, I think is in... I don't know where he is. He's in some part of the world. He emailed me randomly and said, hey, I really enjoyed the fifth episode of your podcast. And I was like, the internet is amazing. I've been working online since 2005, and I'm still amazed by the fact that a total stranger from the other side of the world can send me an email saying, hey, I enjoyed your podcast. How did you find my podcast? Probably through Twitter. But that's still amazing. Anyway, if you're thinking about podcasting, I would seriously, strongly encourage you to get into it. I'm only seven episodes in, including this episode, and I can, I can just start to get a glimpse, I think, of what the benefits will be in the long run as I stick with this. A lot of you are probably perfectionists like me, and uh, a voice that's always in my head is my friend, kind of my coach, Brooke Castillo, and Brooke always says, if you want to become a high-output person, you have to be comfortable doing B-minus work. That is such powerful advice. Be willing to do B minus work. Don't worry about the ums, the ahs, the pauses. In fact, a couple people now have let me know that my fourth episode is very raw. And I found out that it was an accident. I uploaded the wrong version of the fourth episode. There are long pauses, there's repetition. And what it's, ob- it's obvious to me that what I did was I uploaded the unedited version of the podcast. I've had now two different people say to me, I really enjoyed that. It was really authentic and it made me feel like I could podcast. I don't have to worry too much about it. It made me realize that your finished product is very different from your kind of your first draft. My first thought when I heard that was I had this sort of perfectionist seizure inside. I know you know that feeling where it's like, I got to go fix it because I look bad because it, it sounds bad or something. But both of the people who have commented to me about it said, ah, it's so refreshing. You've got mistakes in there. You've got you know, long pauses. I can tell you repeat repeat yourself sometimes. (laughs) I just repeated myself. Both of them appreciated that about it. It reminded me of uh, of some copywriting learning I did a few years ago that said some of the best copy in the world has typos inserted into it intentionally. Now, I think that's a little cheesy and disingenuous, but the principle that really effective sales copy would have typos in it or grammatical errors reinforces the idea to me that people are looking for humanness in the content they consume and in the products they consume. They don't want to see perfection. It's, it's also the reason why some of the most loved and most effective weight loss coaches in the world are people who still have some weight to lose because it's about relatability. If you're working on something in your life right now or if you have a desire to work on something in your life right now, fight your perfectionism, be willing to do B-minus work, Get, get it out there and let it connect with people because people are incredibly forgiving. They just want to hear what you have to say. They want to learn from you. They're not that concerned about whether it's perfect. In fact, if it's perfect, that's probably off-putting to a lot of people. Not everyone, but there's a big group of people out there that will look at a perfectly produced podcast or video or course or blog post or whatever it is. And if it's perfect, it'll be off-putting to them. 
It'll be too curated, too edited, and they sense it, and they don't like it. Now, I did go back, and I found that I had an edited version of that fourth episode, and so I uploaded it instead of the uncut version, not as a matter of perfectionism, but just because the edited version is a full 12 minutes shorter. So out of respect to the listener, I uploaded the edited version, but uh, it's a pretty good episode. You should go have a listen. Uh, So far, my most popular episode is the fifth episode of this show, where I talk about how I helped create and then kind of killed this super successful membership site, $50,000 per month membership business. You should go have a listen to that. And after you do that, go to iTunes and leave me a review. The truth is, as of this moment, I'm still not in iTunes, but by the time you listen to this, hopefully I will be. So go to iTunes, leave me a review. I'd be really grateful. Also, if you're not on my newsletter yet, go to markbutler.com, sign up for the newsletter. I like to talk about business through the lens of the specific numbers that make the business work. I like transparency. I like telling the entire story, not just sort of the glossy version of the story. I like telling the whole story through the lens of the numbers, and that's what you get when you sign up for my newsletter. I'll be in touch with you every Friday afternoon, so go jump on that. So what I want to talk to you about today is business partnerships, because over the last decade, I've been involved in, I don't know, three, maybe, yeah, probably three different business partnerships. They all worked well, they all had their bumpy moments, and I've learned a lot of lessons from them that I will take into any future business partnership that I have, because I'm not anti-business partner. In fact, I think that sometime next year, sometime in 2018, I will be seeking another business partner for uh, a new software project that I'm hoping to work on. So what I want to talk to you about today is what I've learned from my business partnerships and how I will approach the next one when it comes around. And this came about... Because the other day I had a client tell me that she's thinking about forming a partnership with her sister. Now, most people would hear that and they'd say, oh, never! you never want a business partner, let alone a a family member. Well, two of the three business partnerships I want to talk to you about have been with family members, so I'm not opposed to working with family. In fact, it's really fun, and I would do it again. I'll talk to you about why, but I would do it again. And in this episode, I just want to talk to you about how I would do it, why I would do it, and how I think you can ensure that it works as well as possible. We minimize the minimize the possibility of having the partnership blow up in your face, cause hurt feelings, break up friendships, or damage family relationships, or whatever it is. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is the division of labor in a business partnership. You know, the reason that you're starting a partnership is because you feel like the other person has complementary skills that you feel make the pie bigger. My my first business partner, Court Tuttle, the one I worked with on the on the membership website that I talked about in episode five. I remember distinctly Court telling me, I'm partnering with you because I think that the pie is bigger with you than it is without you. It was that simple for him. It wasn't about being buddies because we weren't even close friends when we started working together. We were acquaintances. We seemed to be okay with each other personality-wise, but he was very matter-of-fact about that, and I appreciated that, and I think that's, that was wise. He, he just said, I think the pie gets bigger with you than it would be without you, and so that's why I'm in this partnership. If I thought the pie was bigger without you, then I wouldn't be partnering with you, and it's that simple. And I think for him, and I know for me, that that partnership started because he saw that I had experiences and skills that he didn't have. He could have developed, but he didn't have at the time. And I saw that he had experiences and skills that I didn't have at the time. I also could have developed them. But at the time, we looked at each other and said, you bring some things to the table that I don't have. I bring some things to the table that you don't have. Let's partner up and see if we can make something of this that makes us both better off than if we were just working alone. I think that's the right reason to start a partnership, or it's one of the right reasons to start a partnership. I think the wrong reason to start a partnership is 
I'm scared or I'm lonely. I, I think it's wrong to to think about, well, I don't I just don't want to work alone. So I want a business partner. That's not terrible. I understand that sentiment and I feel it sometimes, but I think it's the wrong reason to jump in a partnership. And if that thought of I'm I'm lonely or I'm scared or I'm not sure I can make this on my own, I think if that's too prominent in your head, it sets you up to jump into a business partnership that may or may not be the right one. Kind of sounds sounds like a marriage, doesn't it? Where if your reason for getting married is I'm I'm lonely, I'm scared, I don't like to be by myself, if that's why you're jumping into a relationship, it's probably not going to be a great relationship. Same thing with a business partnership. In fact, a marriage is a really good analogy for a business partnership, and I'll talk more about that. So Court and I jumped in together. His job was to be the subject matter expert in what we were teaching at the time. We were teaching people how to rank websites in Google, and Court was an expert at that. And he had this kind of scientific brain, he still does, where he could get into a subject, he could study it, experiment with it, figure it out, and format it so that it was easily transferred to other people. And he would do that. He was brilliant at it. I would take what Court did, and I would turn it into products. I would say, here's the format we're going to use. Here's the price we're going we're gonna to sell it for. Here's how we're going to deliver the product. And that was it. So he was kind of the guy who was the subject matter expert, and I was the guy who turned his expertise into money. Now, he also had a huge role in the marketing, meaning he's the one who brought everybody in the door that we could sell to in the first place because he used his subject matter expertise to actually attract people to us. So if you think about all business boiling down to marketing, sales, and fulfillment, in other words, creating demand for your product, monetizing the demand for your product, and then delivering great experiences, Court's job was mostly creating the demand, my job was mostly monetizing the demand, and my job was mostly um, delivering the experience. That's kind of how it shook out for us. Now, if that sounds uneven, it's not uneven at all. Because I don't know if I've said this yet in an episode, but it's truly my opinion marketing is the hardest thing in business. Creating demand for a product is the most difficult thing to do in business. Once there's demand for a product, it's not that hard to figure out how to monetize it. Unless you're in something weird like, you know, like an eyeball-driven business that's all about free users and all that nonsense. That's not, I'm not into that. What I'm talking about is when you're coming up with products and services, the hardest part is to create demand for those products and services. The easier part is to monetize that demand and then deliver great experiences. So the way our partnership worked is that Court was mostly responsible for getting people in the door. My job was getting them to give us money and then be happy that they gave us money. That's pretty much how we divided it up, and it worked really well for a few years. I mean, it turned into a $50,000 per month membership site. So something must have worked right. So when Court and I started working together, I don't remember whether we had a conversation where we clearly divided up the labor and said, okay, Court, your job is marketing. My job is sales and fulfillment. We might have, but I don't remember having that conversation. But it just sort of worked out that way. And it was that way for the whole three and a half, four years of our partnership. And it worked well. If you're considering a partnership, I would start there. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? What are we going to be responsible for and accountable for? One thing that you have to understand if you're entering into any business partnership is that by entering into a partnership, you now have a boss. Your boss is your partner. And you are your partner's boss. You're responsible to each other for specific deliverables. Those things aren't always very easy to measure, but there needs to be clarity on here's what you are supposed to be doing on a daily basis in order to help us reach our goal, and here's what I'm supposed to be doing on a daily basis in order to help, it, help us reach our goal. And when we come together and meet, 
we're going to have very frank conversations about whether we're doing our part. Now, that could get awkward. And if that's too uncomfortable, then the partnership probably won't last. I think for both Court and for me, that was a hard part. I don't think either one of us really likes to have to answer to anyone. We, we became self-employed because we didn't like having a boss. So neither one of us was very excited, whether we said this or not. I don't think either one of us was very excited to have someone else kind of looking at us and saying, well, are you doing, are you doing your part? It starts there. It starts with the division of labor, and it starts with figuring out how to be accountable to each other for your, your respective deliverables. Not in a micromanaging kind of a way, not, not in like an accusatory sort of way, like you're not pulling your weight or you're, you know, these things aren't always easy, easy to measure. So I don't think in a business partnership, you can be holding each other to arbitrary numbers that you might've plucked out of the air. Well, you know, you were, you were responsible for X and you were responsible for exactly Y. I don't think it works that way. And I think that just like in a marriage, if there's a lot of scorekeeping going on, you're setting yourself up for trouble. One of the things I really appreciated about being in business with Court is that I never felt like Court was doing any scorekeeping. I think Court just looked at me and said, I think Mark's doing his best. He's responsible for turning the people into money and for giving those people a great experience, and I'm responsible for getting more of those people in the door. And we pretty much left each other alone. And I appreciated that because I don't have a personality. I don't, I don't, like, to be, I don't like to be managed at all, let alone micromanaged, and I know Court was the same way. But we still had that division of labor. Now, if I were going to go into a business partnership again, I would probably be a little bit more explicit up front with my business partner and say, okay, here's what you're responsible for. Here's what I'm responsible for. And here's how we're going to be accountable to each other. We're going to set up a meeting schedule, not long like corporate style meetings, but we're just going to set up a periodic check-in where we can say to each other, here's what I'm responsible to do. Here's how I'm doing with it. And then the business partner is going to do the same thing. Because without that, you can start to drift. And especially if you're working remotely, if you and your business partner don't work in the same office every day, your ideas might start to drift, your goals and your focus might start to drift, and you might start to take the business in your head in a direction that that you haven't made them aware of. If you don't have frequent check-ins on the goals and on your progress toward the goals, you might end up at a place where your partner's expectation about what you're doing on any given day is completely different from what you think you should be doing on any given day because you've kind of evolved your job in your own head without checking in with him or her. So I think it's okay to evolve. I think you just have to include your business partner in that evolution. So when you come together for periodic meetings, you can say, by the way, the thing I committed to in the last meeting, as I've dug into it, I just really haven't felt it. I'm going kind of this direction instead. I'm still, I'm still, pursuing my area of responsibility. I'm still working toward the goals that I signed up for in this partnership, but I'm taking a different direction with it. And it may pay off a little bit later, may pay off a little bit sooner, but you just have to be checking in with each other on these things. Court and I did not do great with that. If I could go back, I would, I would do a better job as a partner with that, where I'd say, here's what I'm working on. What are you working on? How does that get us where we want to go? Speaking of which, as you enter a partnership with somebody and you recognize here's what you bring to the table, here's what I bring to the table, here's what I think I want to be responsible for, and here's what you're going to be responsible for. You also have to get clear on what your values and your goals are in that business. If, you're, if your goals are very, very different, of course the business partnership is going to struggle and eventually fail. So for example, let's say that you're starting a business and your goal is to have a big exit, meaning you want to build a company and in three to five years you want to sell it, get a big payday, and retire on a beach somewhere. Great. 
if your business partner's goal is to build a cash flow business, reach a certain level of income, harvest the cash out of the business on a regular basis, and, and just kind of have a lifestyle business, those are, those are two goals that take the business in completely different directions. So if you go into the business and you haven't made it clear, I want to be out of this thing in three to five years. And if your business partner hasn't made it clear, you know what, in three to five years, I want to be cash flowing a million dollars per year. And I just want to kind of hang out there forever. I want this business to be something I'm working on in 20 years. If you want to get out in three to five and your partner wants to get out, maybe never, of course, you're going to have conflict in the business because it's going to impact how you reinvest profit, how you borrow money to grow the business. It'll impact whether you want to hire people and how many people you want to hire and how fast you want to hire them. All of these things are, are directly impacted by your main goal and your partner's main goal for the business. I understand that people's minds change, and, and that's okay. You have, to, you have to leave yourself and you have to leave your partner room to change your mind over time. To come back later and say, I know I said I wanted to get out in three to five years, but the truth is I'm really enjoying the cash flow. I think I want to take this in the direction of being a cash flow business. You have to recognize that we all change our minds. But as your, as your partnership starts, you have to have a pretty good sense of what the other person wants from the business. And again, you have to check in periodically on whether or not the business is giving that person what she wants or what he wants. But if you start out very, very far from each other in terms of values and goals, then don't start the partnership at all. The other thing I would say about starting out the partnership is I think that business partners need to be on pretty equal footing in order for the partnership to have the best possible chance of success. So here's what I mean by equal footing. First, we have to talk about ownership percentage. Then we have to talk about day-to-day compensation. And then we have to talk about how best case scenarios impact the lives of the individual owners. Let's take those one at a time. First of all, ownership percentage. I don't think I will ever do a 50-50 business partnership again. It's not that I don't want to be in equal ownership with a business partner. I'm fine with that. It's that a 50-50 partnership has the possibility of reaching a stalemate where you literally can't move forward because you have equal votes in the business. So if you disagree and if your partner disagrees, then either you have to find agreement or you have to sue each other. And I, nobody ever wants to sue each other, and I don't even see that as a, as a reasonable or viable outcome. But in a 50-50 partnership, that's kind of your only recourse. I mean, you could hire a, an a, like a arbitrator, a mediator, whatever. I think if I ever go into a business partnership again, I want there to be some sort of uneven split in the partnership, even if it's 51-49. Because that 51-49 becomes a symbolic kind of understanding between the partners that at the end of the day, one partner gets to say, we're doing this or we're doing that. I think that will be off-putting to a lot of people. They'll say, oh, I don't ever want to be in a position where I don't have the final say. Well, if you don't want to ever be in a position where you don't have the final say, maybe don't get into a business partnership because that's what a business partnership is. It's, it's recognizing that sometimes you're not going to have the final say. Now, you might say, well, okay, if that's the case, then I'm, I'm never going to go into a business partnership where I'm the minority partner. Okay, great. But I know that there will be a lot of people who listen to this and they say, honestly, to themselves, I'm really not the person who wants the final say. I don't love to make decisions. I don't want the pressure. I don't want the stress. And then there are others of us who say, I never want to be in a position where the final say is in, a, is in someone else's hands. So you'd need to divide the business up accordingly, where you say, okay, it's going to be 51-49 or 60-40. 
with the recognition that there's no, there's no tyranny in this business partnership. Because if a person seems like a tyrant, then don't go into a business partnership with her or him in the first place. But on tough calls, after we discuss everything, after we figure out what we think is the best way forward, if we disagree, final say does fall to the majority owner, and that's me, or that's you. And you accept that on the way in. But 50-50 business partnerships can be really tricky. I was in a 50-50 partnership with my little brother. We created a, a WordPress backup and security solution in 2011. That was a situation where I was basically the investor and he did all the work. In fact, he did the marketing, he created the product, he did a lot of the customer service. I eventually helped with the customer service, but he kind of did all the work. We were split 50-50. It worked. It worked okay. We can talk a little bit more about what worked and didn't work in that partnership in a minute, but where it got really tricky was as we were getting ready to sell that business, as 50-50 partners, we reached a really tough, like an impasse, where we couldn't make a decision. And it got heated, and it's between brothers, and my little brother is really he's my best friend in the world, I would say. It got really, really tough. It got bad enough that we actually had to call our third brother, our older brother in, to act as a, as a mediator. And thank goodness, I mean, he did a great job of that. We found a solution that we could live with. But in the moment, it was bad. It was heated. I would not want to repeat that. So going into another business partnership, even with my younger brother, which I would do again, in fact, I would love to do again, I would not do it as a 50-50 split. And we'd have to see whether or not we could agree on that up front. But 50-50 splits are tough. Now, I also don't like the extreme other end of the spectrum, where it's like 95-5, 90-10, 80-20, even 70-30. I'm not very excited about that kind of a partnership either. Why? Well, because in an 80-20 split, for example, or a 90-10 split, any given business outcome is many times more exciting for the majority owner than it is for the minority owner. So if that's a profit distribution, then you distribute the money according to your ownership percentage. So the 90% owner is going to get 90% of that distribution, and the minority owner is going to get 10% of that distribution. Well, depending on the amounts of money, that could be a really exciting day for the majority owner and a totally ho-hum day for the minority owner. So now their incentives are misaligned. So let's say it's 100000 Let's say the business is going great and you decide, we're, okay, we're going to take a dividend out of this business and it's going to be $100,000. Well, the 90% owner gets 90000 and the 10% owner gets ten. The 10% owner says, oh, this is you know $10,000 bonus. Okay, great. I take a little vacation. Then 90% percent owner, 90,000. It's like, oh, 90,000. I just paid off a big chunk of my mortgage with that dividend. That misalignment in incentives, that, that uh, unevenness in the outcomes, I believe would create problems. Because for the minority owner, it's going to end up feeling like a little bonus, like a little, oh yeah, I got a little bonus at work. For the majority owner, it's like, this is life-changing money. So what do you think happens to their motivation? It's not all about money. I understand that money isn't, isn't the driver that that a lot of people think it is. But when the outcomes are so disproportionate, it's harder for that minority owner to get excited about any given, uh, any given outcome, especially an outcome that would be very exciting to the majority owner. It also changes the, the finish line for the business because let's say that the minority owner says, what I really want to get from this business is you know, kind of financial freedom. I want to reach the financial finish line through this business. Maybe the majority owner says the same thing. I want to reach the financial finish line through this business. Well, if I own 80% of the business, the finish line for me 
is much closer, meaning the, the, the sale of the business could be much smaller and I get 80% of it and it frees me financially forever. The 10% that's left or the 20% that's left for my partner, again, it's like a nice big bonus. What frees me forever financially might just pay off his house or her house. And that's a big win too. But if we put this into more concrete numbers, let's say we sell the business for $3 million. I own 80%, he owns 20%. My 80% of the $3 million is worth $2.4 million. After I pay my taxes, I'm probably, depending on my lifestyle and where I live, I'm probably free forever financially. His 20% of the $3 million is $600,000. After he pays off his taxes, again, depending on where he lives, he pays off his house. Paying off your house is amazing. That's an amazing outcome. I'll take it. But if I take that outcome, then I'm thinking to myself, oh, I've paid off my house now, so I've saved a couple thousand bucks a month in mortgage, but I'm not financially free necessarily. I probably have to either go start another business or get another job. And if that's the case, then for the minority owner in the business, they're probably wanting to either stay in the business for longer because they, they want the exit to be much bigger so that they can go way beyond paying off their house. And now the majority owner is having to say, well, I guess I I need to go for a much bigger outcome than I actually need in order to reach financial freedom because I've got to take my 20% partner to his finish line or her finish line. So now things get a little messy. So for me, I would not put myself in that position. And I I wouldn't want to put that uh, business partner in that position either. I don't want a 50-50 split, but I don't want the split to be so disproportionate that we suddenly have very different ideas of where the finish line is and very different feelings about any exciting outcome in the business where something that's really exciting for me as the majority owner is not not exciting at all to him as the minority owner. So when I think about what that actually looks like, it probably means that I don't want to do a split that's much different than about 60-40. 70-30 even seems like pushing it. I, I think if I ever go into a business partnership again, I probably want it to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 60-40. So that on any given day, if we have a nice big cash event, whether it's a bonus or whether we sell the business, it's proportionally exciting for both of us. And going back to that $3 million example, if, I sell, if we sell the business for $3 million, my 60% is worth $1.8, his 40% is worth $1.2, that's an exciting day. We might decide, though that that's not enough for either of us. We might say, okay, we actually need to go to a $5 million exit or a $6 million exit so that our, our proportional shares are get us both across the finish line. I like the idea of that. I want my incentives with my business partner to be aligned. So I'm talking a lot about ownership percentage and what happens in the event of either big bonuses or, or the sale of the business. And those are both important topics. An almost equally important topic is day-to-day compensation. Because when you start a partnership, you have to decide how much are we each going to take out of this business. When you're figuring out how much you're going to pay each other, pay yourselves as owners in the business, it relates directly to the job that you're doing in the business and how much you could be earning if you were doing that job elsewhere. It's not just a function of how much of the business that you own. In fact, it really shouldn't be a function of your ownership percentages at all. It's a combination of how much you could earn if you took a different job and what your cash needs actually are in order to keep you healthy and happy in your job as an owner in the business and an employee of the business, as opposed to saying, well, we're both 50-50 owners or 60-40 owners. We're just going to take money from the business according to our ownership percentages. Now, that's the dividend. That's the profit distribution. That's not your day-to-day compensation. 
And the day-to-day compensation is something that you, you kind of negotiate and work out with each other depending on the job that you're doing. So if we go back to the, the partnership with Court and the membership site, I told you that in that business, Court's primary job was subject matter expertise and marketing. And I've told you that I think marketing is the hardest thing to do in a business, and I think it deserves to be the best compensated job in a business. So in hindsight, if Court and I would have taken a salary as opposed to just distributing all the money from the business, it would have made more sense for Court's month-to-month salary to be bigger than mine while he was fully engaged in the marketing efforts, and for my salary to be proportionally smaller as the person who is packaging, selling, and fulfilling the products. The way you think about that, by the way, is if Court would have done that business without me, how much would he have had to pay someone to take his subject matter expertise, package it, and sell it, and do the customer service? He would have had to pay them something, but there really are a lot of people in the world who would be excited to do that work. So Court could probably have hired someone to do it for less than he was paying me. Now, the value that I brought to the table is that I think I brought creativity to the creation of the products. I thought up some products while we were partners. So I'm not saying I feel like I was overcompensated, but I'm saying if it were just a matter of court deciding that he wanted to monetize his expertise by packaging it and selling it in whatever format, he could have hired someone to do that. He would have had to think of the products, but he could have outsourced the creation to someone for less than I was earning in the business. If I were a person at the time who didn't have court and said, I want to market and sell products online, and I would have had to go hire the marketing, that would have been very, very expensive. It's hard, bordering on impossible, to find someone who can effectively create demand for a product at enough scale that it becomes a viable business. So if Court and I had been taking salaries, I don't know what they would have been, but let's say Court's salary should probably have been 10000 a month and mine should have been 6000 a month as the product creator and customer support person versus the marketer. Now, in that particular business, it progressed to the point where Court did all the marketing and he did it well enough that there wasn't a ton of marketing to be done on a day-to-day basis. So Court's time requirements in the business shrunk some, and then it was up to me to continue supporting the business. So things kind of evened out that way, and that was fine. But when you think about how much you're going to pay each other in the business as partners, that's a function of how much you could be earning elsewhere and what job you're doing in the business. And of course, you need to be paying yourselves enough that your life still works. There, there are these noble ideas or, or kind of dramatic stories you hear about founders, and we didn't take any money, and we, we lived on ramen and rice and whatever. And that's all fine. It's especially fine for people who don't have families. But I have a family. I'm not doing that. But I think that when you, when you decide to partner with someone, you have to also decide, I'm going to pay this person well enough that they're not going to feel a constant draw to another job or another opportunity. They have to be making enough money that they feel safe, that they feel at ease. And some people would say, well, no, because they need to be driven. I don't agree. I think that I don't want to work in a business where I'm, I'm in serious financial jeopardy. That's not where my risk tolerance is. And I don't want to ask a business partner to do the same thing either. So if I'm going to partner with a person, we need to make sure that either we have our own jobs that pay our bills while we build this thing on the side, or if we're going to be full-time in this thing, that we're able to pay ourselves an amount of money that makes our life work. All right, last thing about business partners, about choosing a business partner and working with a business partner. This is actually my number one criteria at this point in my life for a business partner. It's do I like the person? Do I want to spend a lot of time around him or her? 
if you're going to start a business with someone, you are going to spend huge amounts of your life with that person, probably more hours on a day-to-day basis with that person than you do with your own family. So I don't care if they're the world's foremost expert on whatever. I don't care if they're a genius. I don't, I don't care about any of that as much as I care about, do I want to sit next to you on a four or five hour plane ride and then go spend three or four days with you at a conference where we're together every minute? Do I look forward to spending that time together? If I do, we can talk about being partners. But if I'm looking at you and saying, I really can't see that four or five hour flight. I'm going to have my headphones on the whole time or looking at my, looking at my laptop. I don't really want to spend that time with you. Then I'm not getting into that partnership. I don't care what else they bring to the table. Because for me, the fun and the friendship of it matters way more than the supposed upside of a person being a particular kind of genius or having a bunch of capital or whatever it is, a bunch of connections, I don't care. I don't care what assets they bring to the table if I don't want to hang out with them. And along those same same lines, if I'm going to enter into another business partnership, I need to understand that person's dysfunction really, really well. Deciding whether to partner with someone is not deciding whether you're excited about the high-functioning parts of their life. It's about deciding whether you can handle their dysfunction. Every human being is dysfunctional in some way. I'm dysfunctional in a few ways. Court was dysfunctional in a few ways. My little brother, dysfunctional in a few ways. I understand at this point, for example, with my little brother, he is a completely known quantity to me. I know him probably better than I know anyone else except maybe my wife. I know how he thinks. I know how he's going to react to things. I know how he feels about things. I know him so well. I know his dysfunction perfectly. Now, I also know all of his great parts. All, you know, all of his great aspects of his personality. I understand all of those things. And he knows all of the same thing about me. So understanding each other's dysfunctions perfectly sets a partnership up for success because it reduces and maybe even eliminates the possibility of someone's dysfunction becoming a surprise issue in the business, whether it's them or their relationships, their habits, whatever it is. If you don't know those things going in, then there's this major question mark, this major risk in the business of those things blowing up the business, blowing up the partnership. But if you know the person's dysfunction really, really well, then you say, well, here's, here's some outcomes that could happen based on what I know about this person. And everyone has them. There's no such thing as a perfectly functional human being. So you're never going to find that business partner who's perfect because you're not a perfect business partner. I'm certainly not. Someone who goes into a partnership with me has to understand my, my quirks and my flaws in order for us to succeed. And along those same lines, I really want to understand, I want to know that person so well that I have absolutely no question about their honesty and about their loyalty. Now, loyalty can be a funny word. I don't mean loyalty like they put me ahead of themselves or they would, they would you know, wreck their life for the sake of my life. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying when it comes to court and my brother, for example... There was never in my mind a moment of doubt whether they would do something that was only in their interest and not in my interest. I hope they could say the same thing about me, but I felt that about both of them. Whatever our flaws were, whatever their flaws were, I never had a moment's doubt about how they would act toward me as a business partner with honesty and integrity. So summing this all up from where we ended it to where we started... Do I know the person really, really well, so well that I understand his or her dysfunctions as well as I know their, their high-functioning parts of their personality? Do I trust them as well as anyone can be trusted? Do we have clarity on our goals for the business, both our 
short and midterm goals and our long, long-term goals for the business? And are those goals in alignment? Do we understand how we're going to pay ourselves day-to-day in the business? And are we paying ourselves enough to make our life work? Do we have an ownership split that makes sure that any, any exciting cash event in the business is, is almost equally exciting for everyone involved in the partnership? And are we clear on our individual responsibilities to each other and to the business? And do we have a system for checking in on that accountability? Oh, I almost forgot. Speaking of which, the system for checking in with each other and being accountable to each other. I've given this advice a few times and people always laugh when I give it. I would strongly encourage any two people who are considering a business partnership to go to marriage counseling. Go see a relationship counselor just like you would pre-marriage. And if that, if that counselor is effective, they're going to dig a little bit. And what you want is for them to expose areas of potential conflict before they come up. That counselor's job is actually to drag out fights that you will have in the future that you don't know you will have in the future. If you will do that, it will either save you from a partnership that would have been contentious and unproductive, or it will set that partnership up to be transparent and productive and profitable. So I'm dead serious when I say this. And if I ever go into another business partnership, by the way, one of the basic requirements and an and understanding that I will have with my business partner before we get started is that we will regularly, on a schedule, meet with a relationship counselor. They don't have to know anything about business. They have to understand relationships. I want to regularly have those sessions with, it's a therapist, counselor, doesn't matter, life coach, whatever, who can make sure that we're keeping our relationship on track, keeping our communication clear so that we're making progress toward our goals. And the very last thought I want to give you is that I have, sometimes I'll see people go into partnerships with multiple partners, like three, four, five plus. I'll be honest, that sounds like a nightmare to me. It's hard enough to make a relationship work with two people, even when it's high output, high, high productivity. All of the risks associated with a, uh, a partnership multiply like exponentially when you start to introduce a third, a fourth, and a fifth, sixth person. Some people do it. They pull it off. I don't know how. I honestly don't know how. Maybe that's just my personality flaw. But that's my last thought. It's hard enough with one partner. I would never start a business with multiple people personally. Anyway, you got to hit me up on Twitter. I am at Mark Butler Show, or you can send me an email, mark at markbutler.com. I'm curious to see whether this was interesting or useful to you. But that's it for this week. I'll talk to you next Friday.